The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Fabulous you. I am your host, Melanie Young, and thank you for welcoming all of us for this Empower Hour. For those of you who marched uh, this weekend for the Women's March, awesome. I support you. For those of you who didn't, you're soldiers in spirit. I believe that you can speak your voice and show your mind in any way you want, and my goal is to help you live a healthier life and make smarter choices to live healthier in your life. Uh, for those of you who are joining me for the first time, this is Fearless Fabulous You. I'm your host, Melanie Young, and you can listen to all my shows anytime, anywhere on iHeart.com and the free iHeart app. So I decided today, I, I am about empowering women to make healthy choices to live happier lives. There are a few topics I try not to address, but I also realize it's important to have an open mind about topics because what happens to me in my life may not be what happens to you in your life. And one of those topics is um, opioid addiction and, and addiction to painkillers. Um, I've tried not to address addiction in my show for a number of reasons, but I was... I decided to change my opinion on it because I, I, I looked at the statistics and I did some hard thinking and I was on painkillers when I had breast cancer and most recently my husband, David, was on painkillers when he went through a, a terrible neurological problem and I realized how vulnerable you can get when you are on prescription painkillers, also known as opioids. I also, in doing my research, realized that an astonishing over 2 million Americans are living in pain. That's a lot, 2 million Americans. And many of them are on painkillers. Now, I'm all for finding ways to create natural, holistic ways to manage your pain. I do that every day because I'm always in pain due to my residual uh, neuropathy from breast cancer. Um, my mother is in constant pain with rheumatoid arthritis. I'm a big believer in finding holistic ways to manage your pain, but I also respect and understand that many people need more than that, and they need prescription painkillers. And the issue is how to make sure that you manage that responsibly for your health and, and don't be become addicted and unfortunately a lot of people do become addicted for a variety of reasons and it has nothing to do with good or bad it just happens so my guest my first guest this segment is Dr. Michelle Waffle who is a specialist in um, drug addiction and opioid addiction who's going to talk about the issue 
of managing your pain and making sure that you uh, manage painkillers responsibly and what to do if you find yourself becoming reliant on them to manage your life. It's a sensitive topic. This entire show, dear listeners, is for on sensitive topics, my second guess as well, but I think it's important. Um, I am honored to have Michelle on the show. She is uh, she's with the University of Kentucky uh, Center of Drug. Uh, she specializes in drug addiction and rehab and helping people who are addicted. She's lectured around the world. It's an honor to have her, Michelle, Dr. Michelle Lawful. I want to thank you for being here. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Melanie. I have to tell you, I, I grappled with this topic and having someone on the show, because it is such a hotbed. But I think it's so important, because I realized when I was doing my research and really reading up on this, how many people are impacted and how many people need help, that I wanted to have you on the show. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for bringing this up and and bringing attention to it. Uh, You know, I want to start with, I always like to start with something very basic. What is an opioid? You always hear about opioid, opioid addiction. Opioid, you know, God knows numerous celebrities have had opioid overdoses. What is an opioid? That's the first question. Sure. So an opioid is a substance that binds to receptors um, mm-hmm. in the brain and throughout the body that are called opiate receptors. And our body actually makes some of its own opioids. Um, some people may have heard of, you know, endorphins. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are naturally occurring um, opiates. And they're there to help us in times of acute crisis. So if we're, you know, in a battle and um, have been shot or anything, our body will produce its own endorphins, which are opioids that bind to the receptors so that we can really fight for our life and not, not be in pain mm-hmm. for it. Um, they make us feel good. So there are natural high, you know, people will talk about a runner's right. high um, or that, that that's because of our body's own natural opiates that it makes. Um, but there's also opioids that come from outside or outside of our body. And these are, um, can be illicit drugs like heroin, or they can also be prescription opioid pain relievers. Hmm. So, you know, and heroin actually used to be a marketed pain reliever. Um, really? So, you know, wow. Yeah. yeah. So it was a product of Bayer Pharmaceuticals many, many years ago um, and toted for, you know, being a great anxiolytic and uh, cough suppressant without addictive properties. Go figure. Um, <laughs> but they all act in the brain, um, is on the opiate receptors in the brain. And then we have opiate receptors in other parts of our body too, like in our gut, which is why if you take a lot of pain pills, frequently you get constipated. True. Um, but the site for where, why you get addicted, that's in the brain. Hmm. So, you know, I was fascinated by this, the statistics of how many people actually live in chronic pain. And I don't quite know why that is. Maybe you can a lightness on that and, and what we can do about it naturally versus going to prescription pain pillars. Right. So that is, um, I mean, there was a lot of talk going on in the late 1980s, mm-hmm. early 1990s about how many people um, in the United States were living with chronic pain right. and a lot of, you know, which is, 
And the answer was um, in large part to prescribe more prescription analgesics. And I think um, what people want to do instead of going automatically to that is making sure that they're getting a really good kind of Mm -hmm. comprehensive um, medical and psychosocial mental health assessment because pain can be um, due to many different things and it can be exacerbated or alleviated by many different things. So um, not everybody who has pain due to um, cancer or arthritis is going to have the same amount of pain complaints, even if they look exactly the same on an x-ray or not. And we know that, you know, people who have comorbid uh, major depression or other mental health diagnoses, that those make the experience of pain worse and that treating that comorbid um, mental health disorder aggressively can actually make the experience of pain um, get better. Um, so you want to have a really good kind of comprehensive assessment where you're, where you're making sure that you're addressing all the potential um, issues that could be exacerbating pain and at the same time be focusing on what's most important to the person. So Correct. making sure the person's life goals are really important too. And, and sometimes taking some of that focus and really making more of the attention be on function rather than pain, the pain can get better as you're helping the person improve their function, even though you might not be directly addressing the pain per se, if that, if that makes sense. Well, um, I, I do it because a lot of it, you know, just the statistics, um, one in four Americans have suffered pain that lasts longer than 24 hours, and millions more suffer from acute pain. This is the National Center for Health Statistics. Pain affects right. more Americans than diabetes, heart disease, and cancer combined. It's the most common form of long-term disability. Let's just underscore that. And, you know, there are different types of pain. For example, Michelle, and I, I always do Dr. Lawful, but I'm very first person. I have pain. I have chronic pain. I am a breast cancer survivor. I have chronic pain due to that in my upper extremities, neuropathy, etc. I have, uh, it's not debilitating pain. It's just like kind of that quiet chronic pain. I manage it through yoga and dance movements and you know, non-medication. But... Uh, my husband, David, and I were talking, and he had a situation where he had um, a slip disc, and he had to have uh, oxycodone. He was in severe pain, and he said his biggest concern when he was taking oxycodone was that he would become addicted to it. And I think the issue is that there I, – I don't know why, and maybe you can enlighten it, why so many people are in pain, but so many – my mother's in pain. She has rheumatoid arthritis. I'm in pain. I have neuropathy. My husband is in pain from lingering issues with his slip disc and some other ish, neurological issues. It seems like a lot of people are in pain. But why – you know, there's a threshold from managing your pain naturally through holistic, you know, massage, acupuncture, yoga, et cetera, et cetera, and then taking painkillers and then taking painkillers responsibly and then taking painkillers and becoming addicted. Correct. You're, you're, you're definitely, you're, you're right on. And right. 
And certainly, I mean, there's lots of reasons why there's potentially increased pain, and some of it mm-hmm. um, goes back to why your other data that you said that we have diabetes that's increasing, we have mm-hmm. obesity that's increasing in the country. Right. And you know, diabetes causes um, painful neuropathy, so that's one right. source of pain. So as the unhealthiness increases and lots of these other chronic medical illnesses, so do um, the potential for, for pain being associated right. with those disorders. Um, obesity, inc- you know, increases your risk for arthritis being, you know, sedentary, which so many of our jobs mm-hmm. are where we're sitting all day, increases our risks for disc disease um, and, you know, just decreases our core strength in our body for, right. for walking around. And as we have lived, um, you know, more years, uh, and aren't dying of, you know, influenza outbreaks uh, and, you know, crazy uh, illnesses like, you know, wiped out um, high numbers, thousands of people, you know, in turn of the century, we're living longer and we're just having, you know, our bodies are mm-hmm. aging and there's some normal amounts of, of aches and pains. I think what's different is, you know, the response to it and the response that that happened within the medical community. And it wasn't one that was, you know, very... Uh, comprehensive and really mm-hmm. looking to first, you know, utilize what you were just talking about, some of the natural um, or non-medication uh, maneuvers or, you know, yoga, like you, you had mentioned, can be mm-hmm. effective physical therapy, yeah. um, you know, just some creative use of pillows or bolsters or, you know, not really aggressive use of non-opioid, non-addicting uh, medications first. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, that we can go into, um, if you like, but I think one of the things that, uh, we don't have in medicine, unfortunately, unfortunately, is we don't have a really great medication that can Mm -hmm. get a pain complaint to go away that doesn't have other really, um, risky side effects, such as, you know, addiction. And I think for, uh, quite some quite some time, there was the belief that you know long acting opioid medications like the old formulation of oxycontin mm-hmm. that because it was long acting that it wouldn't be addicting and that was really very false um, mm. and that led us you know as one of many different um, things that were going on that have caused a lot of um, additional pain and grief and right. uh, suffering. Well, you you work, you know, just again, you're Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Kentucky Center on Drug and Alcohol Research. So you have an outpatient substance abuse disorder treatment that works with people who have opioid disorder. You know, I think it's important, and I think you'll agree, that people who have an opioid addiction, you know, people think about drug users, you know, addicts, and they have a very negative view. And it could be your mother. It could be your sister. It could be your daughter. These are, it just happens, right? I mean, I mean, I, I think it's important to shed a light on the fact that this is an equal opportunity addiction that happens. Certainly. Yes. Yes. Very much so. So, um, I mean, it could be your neighbor. I mean, right. there, that, so it does not, um, restrict itself to people mm-hmm. who are homeless and, and really of lower right. socioeconomic class or, uh, so there are people who, um, if you were to come to my waiting room, you would never suspect they're wearing suits. They run businesses. Um, right. they're, you know, they're on medication and they are in recovery and have, um, 
really had a wonderful response with access mm-hmm. to treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I, I can tell you, um, you know, one thing that's really painful is childbirth, right? right. And so um, I always had an epidural with my children, and I will tell you that if I had, I would become an opioid addict, no doubt, because... <laughs> I got um, some wonderful fentanyl in my epidural, which is a very strong opioid, and I never felt happier. And it wasn't wow. because of pain relief and I was having, you know, my first child. It was I never had so much energy. I wow. had my child in November, and we made the entire Christmas list. In, and that's you know, from the opioid. In like an hour. And that wow. was, yes, yes. So people wow. think opioid, you get really tired and you just fall asleep. No, 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 no. Sometimes the opioid, you know, gives you a ton of energy like you have never had before and you would never describe yourself as being high. I would have never thought of myself as being high. I loved it. I got so much done with my husband there. I was like dictating to him, you know, it's the time of Palm Pilots. Um, But that's what I'll see with my patients that, that, you know, have, you know, stay at home moms or working, you know, working moms Mm -hmm. where they were exposed to it through legitimate medical problem and they were getting housework done all night long and they just had so much energy or men who were working in construction and wow, they could go harder. They could go longer. Um, it was great until it wasn't anymore. Um, and then they got very sick and were craving it and they just, you know, were surprised themselves to realize that they were addicted. So, and no one, you know, no one came into my room um, when I was very clearly very, very chatty and, and giving my husband lots of mm-hmm. um, directions mm-hmm. to say, you know what, you know, Dr. Lofwell, we are very happy that this epidural is doing exactly what it's supposed to do is relieve your pain of childbirth. But... Mm-hmm. You know, we think you're just getting Tylenol after this baby comes out because you have a lot of, you know, you're showing some of the characteristics of someone who's going to want to repeatedly take this and then it's going to put you at risk. So you, you know, found yourself becoming addicted. You found yourself craving it as well. So I think this is I think it's important to underscore the fact that this is something that can happen to anybody. I mean, you're a, you're a doctor. You know, this can happen to anybody. It's not like someone who's out on the street or desert. Anybody could because it's a great feeling and you like that feeling and I have not had children, but I've had other stress in my life and and I I can't imagine what it'd be like to be up and have energy all the time. Here's the big question. How do you know when you've crossed the line? And you may yeah, be. I mean, so we don't, you know, it's hard. It's very hard to tell. Like there's not a biological marker that we can test you for and say for sure. Right. But there's some things from the research. Like we know, like if you have had a problem with other substances or if you have a family history you know, your father or mother was alcoholic or, you know, someone else was addicted in your family, you are going to be at higher risk. So, um, so that's one thing for, you know, you Mm -hmm. yourself to consider. Um, and then to make sure like that you are doing your own kind of still due diligence with, you know, don't be afraid of questioning your doctor. Why are you putting me on an opioid? What other things should we be trying first? I'm afraid of this. Or, you know what, my pain is not the most important thing to me. 
you know, being able to do X, Y, or Z is the most important. And can we, is there something else we can try? And, you know, sometimes those things are really important to say because your doctor or your provider might not need to fill out a prior authorization to get you oxycodone or hydrocodone, but to actually get you to physical therapy is going to be a lot more work. I mean, so that's sort of one of the nonsensical things that Mm -hmm. needs to change within medical practice is that these things that are really have the potential for benefit, but are much less risky are frequently harder to get access to, um, than than just the prescription and, um, so well, prescription is actually you have to educate easier. yourself. Yeah, I mean, the prescription is much easier. <laughs> getting the getting. You know, let's just talk about healthcare. Getting the approval to get like massage or acupuncture or all these other things takes a little more time. Yeah, and it's wrong because I, I I truly believe that if you can find a way to not take a prescription medication, which could be potentially addictive and find a way to find something, you know, get addicted to yoga, get addicted to exercise, do something that's natural, do it. But the problem, as you know, and I know is that it's not covered by insurance half the time. So you take the easy route, which is the pill. Right. 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 And so, I mean, there are, you know, there, I just want to say there are people who really benefit, um, you know, and I, I do have, you know, do know patients who have tried other things or they haven't been able to access other things and they are taking it appropriately. It's just that we, that being careful has not, um, and really having the access to the best care and thoughtful care hasn't, Mm -hmm. hasn't been happening. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, there are people who, who do function better and don't become addicted and, and take them chronically. Um, as well, but you, you do have to, you do have to be, I think, a really informed patient, mm-hmm. and not not be afraid of asking questions and you know slowing things down and making sure that you um, have your best interest at heart and just making sure that your doctor does too. I think doctors do, but they um, they also are seeing patients really quickly, and right. um, they don't want to do harm, but sometimes I think um, that can happen um, with sort of the speed of, of practice and with kind of all the, the potential barriers um, that go around as well. Well, I think it's important, you know, when you're meeting with your medical practitioner, is this prescription necessary or is there a alternative natural way to deal with it? Because and, and how addictive is this prescription and understand the consequences of it? Because I think that's really important is that many people including my husband, um, take medication and don't take it properly. And that can lead to abuse. And that's an important factor as well, is is if you're prescribed something, prescribe it for, you know, take it for what it is, ask what the side effects are, ask what the interactions are with foods and other supplements, and understand the risk, right? Right. Definitely. And so that, and that one of those risks should be what happens if I do become addicted? Like, what right. are you going to do to help me? And what you can know, you what, do? I mean, you see people right. who are addicted. I mean, you know, unfortunately it is particularly opioids like Oxycontin, you know, we're not going to talk about people. I don't want to get into people who do it because they're addicted and it's like, they don't need it. I want to always focus on people who are prescribed it because they're in pain and this is what they're told to do. And then suddenly they're reliant. What can, what would you tell people who suddenly are feeling that 
urgency that they must have it versus they can have it. Because it's a complete difference between I must have this versus I should take this. Sure. So, you know, at that point, they should really be um, carefully screened to see if they've developed an opiate use disorder or an Mm -hmm. an addiction. And Mm -hmm. I would strongly encourage that they get treatment for that addiction because, you know, addiction treatment truly does save lives. And there are very, very effective um, medications to treat addiction. So Mm -hmm. uh, I would recommend that they do that and not be ashamed and don't blame themselves. Um, right. Just deal with it like they would think about it with as another um, medical problem that they have. Well, I think you really underscore it. You should never be ashamed if you're feeling this way. Addiction should not be a form of shame. It is a, it is a situation to deal with, but should never be one based on shame or blame. Correct. It happens. And um, I can speak for I, – I have not been there, but I, I know I have relatives who have – dealt with um, terrible side effects from medications and um, with bad consequences and positive. And and the key is know when you can't stay in control, it's time to seek help and don't be ashamed, right? Yes. Yes, certainly. It's, It's really important. I mean, this is a... I mean, the statistics are shocking. I mean, are our doctors prescribing pain medication too frequently, Michelle, in your opinion? So I think there's a ton of things um, going on. There's, you know, we've pain is the, pain is the fifth vital sign, which doesn't make uh-huh. a whole lot of sense because all of our other vital signs are objective and pain is subjective. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, you know, there's financial incentives mm-hmm. attached to hospitals to make sure that they're addressing that. And yet we don't really have great pain treatments. And so so that leads to some of the increased prescribing, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been, you know, there, I think that most doctors are really, really very well intended. Yeah. Um, but we do know that there have been some unscrupulous pain clinics that have functioned uh-huh. like drug dealers and have put a lot of pills out on the street to be diverted. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think most people have heard about the Florida pain pill mills. You know, at right. one time, I think the top 10 prescribers of OxyContin were all in Southeast Florida. Wow. So those um, places, although, you know, maybe small in number in terms of prescribers, can mm-hmm. put out a lot of um, prescription pills. So so that has been a problem. I think um, there, the, the other problem is that there's just been a lack of uh, substance use disorder treatment and training right. provided in all levels of, you know, medical school, of mm-hmm. nursing school, all of our healthcare providers. Um, so identifying addiction and the abuse liability of these medications is, hasn't been really well understood. So I don't think that um, the healthcare providers have had their radar out for it as they right. would for other potential side effects like, you know, bleeding or, you know, other, mm-hmm. other things that they're used to looking, looking for. Right. And that has made the problems, the, the problem worse. And I yeah. think just not a really great appreciation of, of pain is something that is affected by many different aspects of someone's life. And that it's not directly correlated always with the underlying, um, 
x-ray or, or, or disease. And so that it's, it's not easily um, eradicated by a single pill frequently, especially for right. these chronic, especially for these chronic non-cancer um, conditions. Right. Well, so you it's know, just, it's going to be complicated. It's not, you know, it's not black and white. Um, right. It's a complicated topic. I think we've addressed the tip of the iceberg here today. I think, you know, summing it up, because I know you have to go, it's time to wrap, Michelle, that, you know, if you're in pain, first of all, consult with your medical practitioner. See what you can do um, alternatively to manage it through diet and exercise and nutrition and all the things you should be doing to manage your health. Um, If you take prescription medication, take it responsibly and follow the directions and if you feel that you are having a need that you can't control seek help yes and i think that's to sum it up um today uh michelle dr michelle waffle i know um, you have to wrap and i want to thank you again we've been talking with dr michelle waffle associate professor of psychiatry at the university of kentucky center on drug and alcohol research who has worked with many patients on uh, substance abuse and disorder. And I think most importantly for anyone listening is do not be ashamed. If you're feeling it, do not be ashamed. It happens to so many people. Do not feel ashamed. Ask and seek help. It is available to you. Right? Exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Um, You are listening to Fearless, Fabulous You. I'm Melanie Young. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back and talk to another dynamic woman on another engaging topic. shows anytime anywhere on iheart.com and the free iheart app and hey follow me at mighty melanie on twitter melanie fabulous on instagram and check out my books fearless fabulous you lessons on living life on your terms and getting things off my chest a survivor's guide to staying fearless and fabulous in the face of breast cancer available on barnes and noble iheart.com I mean, sorry, Amazon.com, MelanieYoung.com, and Cure Diva. So today I'm addressing topics that are a little, they're, they're sensitive because I believe in giving women a voice and giving you an awareness of what you need to know because we, there's so much propaganda out there that tells one side of the story. And this is, my next guest is an example. I 
I'm a food professional. As many of you know, I've had a long career in food, wine, long career. And uh, I became a certified health coach after going through breast cancer. And I'm a staunch believer on eating as clean and green as possible. So when I... I was approached to have this next guest gone. I have to I have to confess, I hesitated because I was like, oh my God, she's controversial. I don't know. I don't know about this topic. I don't know if I believe in it. But I believe that any woman that takes action and becomes passionate and pursues her passion and purpose should have a voice. We saw millions of women march this past weekend all around the world who wanted a voice. I believe my mission is to give a woman a voice. And in preparing for the show, I did my own reading. And I realized I didn't know enough about the topic that she's become expert in. So I respect that. And we're going to address it today. She's a Chicago mom. She has a mission. She happens to run a local cooking school, so she's got a food thing going on. But she has become, as she says in her words, an accidental activist. Her name is Julie Kelly, and she has become an accidental activist on the topic of genetically modified foods. And and I have to note, after reading her different articles, many other topics um, involving the environment and how we eat. She's... um, Shaking the, shaking the branches on the culinary trees of people like Tom Colicchio and Mary Batali, both who I know because of my long career in food. Um, but I like that um, because I have learned that you have to see both sides to a story before making a judgment. And while many believe that Our lives should be GMO, genetically modified, free. Julie takes the opposite stance as a staunch defender of biotechnology and explains why. And she's actually given a really good argument. And I want her to have her voice here today. So I'm honored to have Julie Kelly on our show today. Julie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Great intro. Well, I honestly, Julie, I, I as I said to your publicist, I'm I'm like you know, Miss, I'm free and natural and go organic and blah blah. But I did a lot of reading leading up to the show because I do my homework, guys and ladies. And Julie, I realize I don't know the whole story, right? And I think that's interesting. But I have to start with you know, you are a mom first. You live in Chicago, yay. You you run a cooking school, like many of my friends, right? How did you become the accidental activist? What was it that created your why, as I call it? Why did you do it? Um, that's a great question, one that I get a lot. Um, just to back up, uh, I taught cooking classes out of my home. Now that I'm an activist, I don't teach as often as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but my background is also in, in politics. So I was a policy and communication advisor right. for elected officials here. So I, I have extensive background in policy and, mm-hmm. and communicating that. But um, how I fell into this was writing an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about your friend, Tom Colicchio. Right. Uh, at the end of 2014, I, I watched him on a news program and disagreed with what he was saying about uh, the food stamp program and the farm bill and Republicans. And so I just fired off this op-ed and they published it. And um, I wasn't even on Twitter. I was not on social media. So I was not expecting the, the blowback that I got. 
And it just kind of launched me into this whole food fight, as I said, looking into the food movement, the culinary elite, of which Tom Colicchio and Mario Batali are members of, mm-hmm. and uh, really trying to, to talk down to, as I viewed it, moms like me across the country, guilting us into how and what we should and shouldn't be feeding our kids. So I really got into that, and that's what, uh, that's what brought me to the whole GMO issue, because it was really a contentious issue. It still mm-hmm. is. Yeah, um, And so I did a ton of, and we could talk a little bit more in detail. So that's how I got to the GMO issue. And I've really, um, you know, been out there in the forefront in advocating this uh, biotechnology. And it's, it's controversial. You know, uh, first of all, just so you know, Julie, I wrote a blog on, you know, there's so many people there posting on social media about complaining, basically complaining about the system. And my stance is if you're not happy, then, then, you know, put you, you know, start, you know, stop posting, start hosting, host local activities to to help create a a change in your community. Because many of us can change, make changes in our community far faster than the nation. And I'm fascinated by the fact that you became an activist in a topic that you really had no professional training. I mean, granted you have None. political, you know, but you had no right. professional training in this. So no. I'm fascinated about that because I, I live from, I come from a world of food cognoscenti and snobs. So I'm fascinated. <laughs> I mean, I do. I come from the, I mean, I started the James Beard Awards for crying out loud. You know, like I, I knew Tom before he was Tom, you know? Okay. So, oh, you, you know, created him. You're, yeah, you're the I, one I to started, blame. I started the James Beard Awards and when he started Top Chef, he's like, can I be on, you know, can I present an award? I knew these guys before they were nobody. And I did. <laughs> I really did. Wow. Um, Great. So I'm fascinated that you've taken them on. Mm-hmm. And I just for the record, I have no. I'm I'm talking to you with no. I'm going with Tabla Raza here because I've read both sides of it and I'm fascinated. Um. So w- why did you decide to take on the genetically modified uh, GMO topic, which is such a hotbed right now, and a marketing bonanza? As I've read, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because nobody else really was, to be honest. Uh, I mean, you know, how does a suburban housewife like me emerge as one of the leading voices in support of GMOs? Because really only one side of the story was being told. And it was the fear mongering coming from mostly the organic industry um, mm-hmm. for their own financial benefit and from environmental groups who are opposed to companies like Monsanto. They're opposed to genetically engineered crops, not just here, but around the world and the chemicals that are used on them. And so I did extensive research. I went to Monsanto, paid for my own trip, paid for mm-hmm. every penny of it, um, looked at their, you know, what they were doing there at some of their other um, research centers that they collaborate with. I went to Purdue University. I met with Mitch Daniels and looked at their plant sciences um, department. So I just became, my family thought I joined a cult. I mean, they <laughs> Yeah, I did not believe, you know, this, and to your point, it was a huge departure from what I was used to, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I don't have a background in science. Uh, no. you know, science was always kind of scary to me, but you know, it has been so eye opening for me and to learn new things and to take on really challenging subject matter at this point in life, uh, has been so great for me mm-hmm. on so many levels to your point about women, you know, it's just it has so many advantages, and I'm just really enjoying mm-hmm. it. Did you, I mean, you, you basically were a mom. I mean, and, and for the record, you're not hired. You're not a lobbyist. You're not paid nope. by any concerns, right? Because I, 
I asked about that. <laughs> no, in fact, this has cost us money. I do not get paid by any industry, by any special interest group. Um, and so this is, this is costing me money. I don't even get paid for much of my writing. Um, ah, so don't get started there. But anyway, <laughs> I, I know, I know, but you know, when you're, when you're writing about these issues, you have yeah. to be as untainted yeah. as possible. And luckily okay. I'm in a position where I can do that, mm-hmm. which makes me even more of a powerful voice, I think. So for everyone, you're doing this as a passion. Now, something happened. You're, I was reading your bio. Mm-hmm. Something happened with water. What was it with water that made you like turn? What was the water thing? Was there something with water or something happened in your water system that made you like get on edge? Or am I dreaming? No, no, that no, that wasn't me. I don't think so. Okay. It said I, I get mad at all mom, the I, I became I mad an at ex- all- Here's, I became an accidental activist when I uncovered a nefarious corporate government scream to poison my tap water. That was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, guys, that was a joke. Hey, I, I, but just, as you know, I do read. I know. No, that was, <laughs> that was the beginning of this profile that a group asked me to do. Oh. And so I was like, gosh, if only it was that exciting. It really oh, wasn't. Okay. Well, I, I just, I do my homework. <laughs> Right, so right. I, I, I want people out there, I think this is important. Let's just, and let's be open about it, the pros and cons, pros and cons of genetically modified foods. Now, I'll start, you know, because, you know, most people, and I'll start with the pros, believe that genetically modified foods, it, genetically modified foods, and correct me if I, because I've been doing my reading, it, it's, guys, if you're having, if, if you don't want the flu, this is how I go. If you don't want the flu and you take a flu vaccine, you get a flu vaccine, which has the flu vaccine in it, and they inject it into you, and that helps protect you against the flu. That's how vaccines work. You get mm-hmm. the illness injected into you. It, I, as, as a wine professional, if you, you know, sulfites are added into wine to make them better protect them so genetically modified genetic modification is a dna so it's not like inserting poisons or anything it's it's a dna modification that helps protect the vegetable or fruit or seed actually against different pests that could obliterate it and cause a blight now in the wine world which is the world i come from Julie, a blight could be phylloxera, which could devastate a crop and has it devastated the entire wine industry in Europe in the late 19th century. And they had to go and replant blight-free vines because there was nothing to vaccinate the vines at the time, and there still isn't, okay? So as I understand it, genetically modified foods help protect against a blight, that could, that's one thing. There's a couple of things that could protect it from disease. And it can also add nutrients to fruits or vegetables that could help, particularly in third world countries. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the case of uh, Hawaii, where I go frequently, where the papaya crop, which is a big cash crop in Hawaii, was devastated doing, due to a blight, adding in genetically modified um, Seeds help you know, resuscitate what was a crop that was dead 
right. brought it back to life, right? Sure did. Yes, it did. So those are the three things that I learned in reading. And on the contrary, people go, it's not good for you because it could create allergies, asthma, cancer, arthritis, blah, blah, blah. It's poison. Mm-hmm. And it poisons the crops because that's the other side, right? Yes. So based on that, where do you stand in your argument? Um, first, that was a great intro. And uh, that is that hits on the essence of the key benefits of genetically engineered, genetically modified mm-hmm. food. But here's the thing that I learned that really blew me away. Everything that we eat right now has been genetically modified right. over time. If you look at original corn, if you look at original broccoli and kale, a lot of green, everything that we eat has been at some point modified by a farmer, by a plant breeder to yield certain traits. So you could see new apple varieties coming out. I mean, everything has been modified. What we can do now with this technology and what science brings us and progress and, and modernization is that it can be done more quickly in labs and they can identify what certain genes can yield certain traits mm-hmm. and they can shorten the testing time where they're not waiting for for, you know, two or three seasons to see. They have very sophisticated labs where this can be done. And to your point with the papaya industry, when they saved the papaya industry in Hawaii, they not just saved it for as genetically modified, they saved right. orga- organic papaya, right? Mm-hmm. So there are not just benefits to, say, farmers who, who grow these genetically engineered crops. It crosses over to our entire agricultural system, not just here, but more particularly to your point, in developing countries where there's mm-hmm. potential to enhance staple crops with micronutrients that kids need to not be malnourished, to stop, um, say, farmers in Bangladesh from using very harmful, <laughs> costly pesticides on their eggplant, which is BT Brinjal, which has had a great success story there. The cotton industry in India is another great example. Um, you know, we just take for granted how safe and productive our agricultural system is and how monitored it is at every level. That's not the case in poor countries. And these farmers are growing food really for themselves, maybe to sell Mm -hmm. a little bit. But when they have to spend so much on pesticides uh, that are very dangerous, these crops bring uh, are truly revolutionary. And so Mm -hmm. I I hope that people remember, you know, you could see a GMO label at the grocery store and maybe you feel good about yourself buying something that says GMO free or non-GMO. But but it's really stymieing progress in countries for for millions of people around the world who really need this technology, and that's right. what I object to the most. Well, I understand that, and 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 I come from you know the poo 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 person. I'm like I'm I'm like go oh, buy organic. But at the end of the day, not everybody can afford organic. But there's no need to buy organic. I mean, exactly. It, there's exactly. no science that proves that it's healthier for you, that it's better for the environment, that it's it. Right. It, there's there's just no benefit to it. it it's a marketing label under the USDA mm-hmm. um, that's intended to allow organic growers and food companies to jack up the price to make you think that you're doing something really great for you and your family. Well, or is I, I'm going to be very crude, but if if workers are going to piss on your plants, they're going to piss on it whether it's organic or. <laughs> Well, it's not really right? piss. It's the no. other side. It, you know, I'm they sorry. Do a lot they're defecating. If you're getting E. coli, and I hate to be gross, but let's face it, it, it could be 
unsanitary yep. and in occasion it's all gross i mean you you know let's wash your plants no matter what they are right but Right. But the point is for the vat, you know, forget us first world lucky people for the yeah. you know, large majority of third world people out there who are suffering and need food to eat. This can be a bonanza for them. And I mean, I have learned, Julie, a lot in this discussion. I, I, I really, I honestly, I, I had a lot of misgivings when I was going to have you on because I was worried that you were mm-hmm. big. But I, I did a lot of research on you, and I, I admire you for yeah. taking a stand. I mean, you know, I'm all about, and I read about it in my blog this week, believe in what you do and own it. Yeah. Own it and believe in it, and, and, and that's how you make your impact in the world. And I think you, you're doing it, and, and I think it's great. I mean, I, I admire you for that, and and you I know you've got a lot of people who are criticizing you, and yet mm-hmm. they're supporters. and. Hey, as I said today, you agree to disagree. I think it's great. And I think for anyone listening, do your homework before you pass judgment. Do your reading. Yes. Get to know the facts because there are two sides to everything. And I learned that researching for this show. Great. I really did. So I want to thank you. Julie, where can people learn more about you? Because I got to wrap. Um, most of my articles are on National Review online, um, especially on this topic. And then I'm on Twitter all the time, unfortunately. So it's Julie underscore Kelly two, the number two. Okay. Um, so if you ha- if anybody has questions, look me up on Twitter. I'm happy to provide resources or answer questions. And uh, I hope you can have me on again and we can talk about this even more in depth. Thank you. And for all you listening, do your research. Ask questions, be open. Everybody deserves a voice. You're listening to Fearless Fabulous You. I'm Melanie Young. Have a fabulous week. I want if I wanna live I worked hard and sacrificed to get what I get Ladies, it ain't easy being independent